See now that I, even I, am He. And there is no God with me. I kill and I make alive. I wound and I heal. Neither is there any that can deliver out of my hand. For I lift up my hand to heaven and say, I live forever. If I wet my glittering sword and mine hand take hold on judgment, I will render vengeance to mine enemies and will reward them that hate me. I will make mine arrows drunk with blood and my sword shall devour flesh. And that with the blood of the slain and of the captives from the beginning of revenges upon the enemy. Rejoice, O you nations, with his people, for he will avenge the blood of his servants and will render vengeance to his adversaries and will be merciful unto his land and to his people. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for the reading of the scriptures today. Lord, we ask your blessing upon that. We ask, Lord, that the Holy Spirit would open up this passage to us and to teach us, Lord, about your sovereignty, that you are Almighty God. This we ask, Father, in the name of your glorious Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. I'm going to use my Bible because I got it broken down in the Hebrew for me, so um, we'll take it from my for this Bible here. A basic theme today, then, would be the sovereignty of God, which may be understood really as the exercise of his supremacy. We see that in our passage today. I probably could have read this whole chapter, but I kind of wanted to, to just sum this up right here. Because we must, one of the things about Christians I find is that we've got to keep our thoughts when, when they regard God from being too human. We can't look as God, we can't look at God as being human. Because in his names, in his names, we find out that He is the Most High Lord of heaven and earth. He's subject to none. He's influenced by none. He's absolutely independent. He does as He pleases, only as He pleases, and always as He pleases. None can thwart Him, and none can hinder Him. If we have that understanding about God, well, we listen to Isaiah 46.10, which says, My counsel shall stand, and I will do all my pleasure. That's God speaking there. So if we think about divine sovereignty, what does it mean? It means that God is God in fact as well as in name. That he is on the throne of the universe. He directs all things and he works all things after the counsel of his own will. Ephesians 1.11 So if we think about this attribute, while it should be comforting, comforting to us to know these things, to know that whatever God says he will do, it will be done. If you think about God in His sovereignty, He's unrivaled in majesty. He's unlimited in power. He's unaffected by anything outside Himself. And yet, we live in a day when Christians seem afraid to admit the proper Godhood of God. They want to bring God down. They want to bring God down to man's level rather than keep Him where He is. He sovereignly placed Adam in the Garden of Eden. And he placed him upon a conditional footing. Now, if God had so pleased, because he's sovereign, he could have just as easily have placed him upon an unconditional footing. He could have him placed on a footing as sure and as unchangeable as that which he has put us in. Because once we came to faith in Christ, that's it for us. We're going to heaven. But instead, he chose to set him in, the, in Eden on the basis of creature responsibility. 
Adam stood accountable to God by the law that his creator had given him. The Lord said, do not partake of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So Adam stood or fell according to how he measured up or failed to measure up to his responsibility in obedience to his maker. This was true responsibility. It was tested out, by the way, under the most favorable conditions. By the way, there was no sin nature at that time to cause Adam to sin. So then you look at it as this. It's true rebellion. And it's true rebellion that calls God's sovereignty into question. Now next week we'll be starting in the book of Romans, which really also will develop this even further. Listen to Isaiah 45, 9. says, Shall the clay say to him that fashioned it, What makest thou? So what I want everybody to understand here today, before we get into that glorious book, what I call the doctrinal treaties of the Bible for the New Testament, Every truth that God reveals to us in his word is there not only for our information, but also for our inspiration. The Bible has been given to us not to gratify an idle curiosity. I wonder how God would react to this, but really to edify the souls of its readers that we might know and understand the sovereignty of God. The sovereignty of God is something more than an intellectual principle that explains the rationality of the divine government. It's designed as a motive for one thing, godly fear. It is made known to us to promote righteous living. It's revealed in order to bring our rebellious hearts into complete submission to the God of the Bible. Every year, I read and study the Bible. Right now, we have already gotten halfway into the book of Judges. And I, I can't believe how many times his people failed him. And um, in order to bring really our rebellious hearts into submission, we need to learn who God is. And it causes me to give up my own self-will when I see what these people try to do to thwart God. And it teaches me to submit more fully every time I read it to His divine will. The question is then asked, what should our attitude be towards God's sovereignty? And in light of our text today, how can we improve on our knowledge of this doctrine? to have a powerful effect upon our Christian character. Because unless we really have a proper regard for his sovereignty, he won't be honored in our assemblies. And I'm sure you guys have heard by now that they figured out that the revival wasn't exactly what it was claiming to be. It's almost like it was pre-planned ahead of time to go in a certain direction. And a lot of those there who were worshiping I don't even know if they were saved because they were still deep into their, their sins. It's not that believers can't sin, but it's when you are born again, you are a new creature. I mean, it's changed completely. It's 100%. All a different person. Now, before we get into our text today, let me explain to you that Deuteronomy chapter 32 is a song that Moses was appointed by God to sing... And he appointed Moses for this song to give to the people of Israel as an admonishment to them to take heed and to not forsake God. They were just about ready to go into the promised land. Moses would not be the one that lead them. It would be Joshua. By the way, Joshua's name is in the English, Jesus. I found that an amazing thing. This is kind of like the last warning here. Because Moses, would, after this, would die in a valley in the land of Moab over against Beth Peor. And when Moses died, he would be 120 years old. 
And what this psalm does is concludes with a proclamation, which we're working on today, of God's glory and greatness. He wanted Israel to know, before they went to the promised land, who he was. And, and I believe that we can learn a lot from, really, who God is in his sovereignty. And it's as if God is speaking in very specific terms here as, as the last, really, warning before they go into the promised land. And look what he starts out with. Verse 39, See now that I, even I, am he. And there is no God with me. I kill, and I make alive. I wound, and I heal. Neither is there any that can deliver out of my hand. I probably could have just taken this verse today. And it would have been enough, because here we see really the sovereignty of God. Um, um, he starts out with, um, See now that he, I, even I am he as the self-existent one. And by the way, and every name that we get of God in the Bible, it explains to him more and more who he is. And every name, starting from Elohim, all the way through, we get to understand who God is. So that when he says, I, even I am he, he, what he's saying is he's the self-existent one. He's the only God. There is none with God equal in his glory. He's the great God here. And he demands that glory. In Exodus 3.14, this is when God declared to Moses, I am that I am. In other words, God was self-aware. And also he's saying, he's declaring he's immutable unchangeable, that he is eternal, he had no beginning, he had no ending, he forever exists, and is forever the same. He's incomprehensible, he's consummate perfection, he's everything that has life, he is entirely dependent only upon himself, he's the great I am, he distinguishes himself from all the lifeless idols of those nations in Canaan. They can't speak, they couldn't hear, you look at today and what Brian was talking about in Hawaii. It's ridiculous when you have God of all creation. And look what he says about himself. See, now that I, even I am he. And there is no God with me. He doesn't need any help. In Isaiah 43.10, it says of God here, that you may know and believe me, God speaking, and understand that I am he. Before me there was no God formed, neither shall there be after me. So in other words... He's eternal in nature. God always existed. And he will always exist. There will never be any other God. Because God is absolutely sovereign here. He said, there's no God with me. And look what he says after that. He says, I kill and I make alive. So that he forms both the light and the darkness of death. And he says here, um, I wound and I heal. So that he kills and wounds his enemies, but he heals and makes alive his own people. When in Genesis 38, by the way, it's a, it's a chapter in the book of Genesis that seems to be just placed there in the middle of that book. And it, it seems to come out of nowhere. But in that chapter, I notice this, there's a man there by the name of Ur. Ur is the son of Judah. Ur was wicked in the sight of God. And you know what it says? It says the Lord slew him. Just like that. Now he had a brother. His brother's name was Onan. He was supposed to go into Ur's wife and complete the seed of his brother. He wouldn't fulfill that duty. What did God do? He slew him also. So he kills and he makes alive. He kills those with his judgments who revolt and rebel against him when it pleases him to do so. 
Do you remember in the book of Leviticus, chapter 10, you had Nadab and Abihu. These were the sons of Aaron. They took their censer and offered strange fire thereon before the Lord, that he commanded them not. Well, fire went out right from that point on there, and it devoured them, and they died before the Lord. Anybody ever doubts how serious God is about how we approach him? Now, we don't know what the strange fire was. Some people believe they took the fire from a different source, from an unholy source. And then later on a little bit, it talks about how uh, God told Moses, don't let anybody come into the temple who drank wine and perhaps weren't 100% in their minds. And perhaps maybe that's why they took strange fire in there. But see, fire went out from the Lord. He devoured them and they died before the Lord. That should have been a warning to Israel right there. The Lord's response was this. This is what he said about the whole matter. I will be sanctified in them that come nigh me, and before all the people I will be glorified. Now, is that only for the Old Testament saints? No, it's for us too. When we come in here, we better have our minds and our hearts in the right place. Whenever we come to worship God here, we come nigh unto him. And I better have my act together too. This, this consideration ought to make us very reverent and serious in all our acts of devotion. Some people say, I kind of shake and I get scared up here. Well, why wouldn't I? I'm preaching his word. I'm under a great responsibility. I have to sanctify in my heart before I even get here. But for what I see in our new contemporary churches today, much of the body of Christ has forgotten that God is a holy God. I haven't. That's why I read his word every year because it keeps me sharp. Listen to Isaiah 8.13. Sanctify the Lord of hosts himself. Watch this. And let him be your fear and let him be your dread. Isaiah knew. that That's the way we would have him in our heart here. And it's not that we're scared of him and that type of fear here. But it's like we honor him. And, and we remember who he is. When we sanctify him in our gathering together, we glorify him. And, and we come together and we worship him in holiness, in spirit, and in truth. Because he's holy. But if God be not sanctified and glorified by us, he eventually will take vengeance on those that profane his holy name. Did you know for a Christian, there is the sin unto death? And if you review the chapter 11 in 1 Corinthians, people were dying because they came to the Lord's Supper without the proper heart. They trifled with him. And they looked at the Lord's Supper as trifling. The Lord... They got drunk, and they ate like pigs. When the Lord does judge, he says in verse 39, neither is there any that can deliver out of my hand. So when I think about Nadab and Abihu, they had been very great among the people of Israel. They had these great uniforms on, and and they were looked upon as, as the favorites, the great favorites of heaven. And then the next time you see them, their charred bodies were carried out from the sanctuary through the camp. And think about, put yourself there. Okay? And this is something that just amazes me. His aunts must have been there, his uncles, his cousins. But then you also had Aaron, his father. And then you had Eleazar, and then you had Ithamar, his sons. Did you know they had to be silent in this? And you say to yourself, boy, that must have been really hard for them. Right. But if they really, if Aaron, Eliezer, and Ithamar, they were all priests, and Aaron was the high priest, they eventually would become into that position later on down the road. But 
They had to look at it this way. If God was to be sanctified, then they had to be satisfied with His righteousness and His display of His proper judgment. What do I mean? Well, far be it from them that they should honor His sons, Aaron's sons, more than God. If God wasn't sanctified and He wasn't glorified, then so be it. He's going to kill them. They should have known that going in. And if they did drink wine, shame on them. Or if they came in and just said, well, we'll get the fire over here instead because it's closer by. Bang, just like that. He shoots out fire. Think about the church of Laodicea. Well, Pastor Bo, isn't that the Old Testament? Isn't that a different God over there? <laughs> what did he say to the church of Laodicea? I will spew out of my mouth. That's a church of Jesus Christ. Think about what he told Ephesus in Revelation 2.5. I'm going to remove thy candlestick out of his place, except you repent. If that wasn't enough, Pergamos. They allowed false doctrine into that church. That very quickly he was going to come and fight against the church with the sword of his mouth. That's his word right there. That's a New Testament church. Hmm, maybe it is the same God. How about Thyatira? They allowed a Jezebel, a Joyce Myers, a Beth Moore, a Paula White to come into their church. They call themselves a false prophetess to teach in that church. And I, and I think about this. What did the Lord do about that? He brought sickness and death not only to Jezebel, but to her children. He killed her children with death. Oh, no, that meant that that's the ones that she taught. No, it says her children. <laughs> Well, I say to myself, yeah, but we're saved by grace. I just preached the gospel of grace last week, but there's still responsibility that comes with grace. See, even though we placed our faith in Jesus Christ for salvation, the Lord is changes not. The God of the Old Testament is the God of the New Testament. Jesus Christ, the same yesterday and today and forever. And I'm sorry, Ben Shapiro, but he's not a different Jesus. Hebrews 13.8. It also says in Hebrews, Our God is a consuming fire. That's in the New Testament. He is light. He is love. Yes, but He's still God. He doesn't change. Look what He says in verse 40. For I lift up my hand to heaven and say, I live forever. God Himself lifts up His hand to the habitation of His holiness. Because He could swear by none greater, He swore by Himself. There's none greater than God. And he swears by his own eternal existence. When he does something like that, what he just said in verse 39, he's emphasizing that. He swears by his own eternal existence. And that's what he declares is as certain as God is the great I am. He's the self-existent one. And upon that oath, he swears this in verse 41. If I wet my glittering sword... In mine hand take hold on judgment. I will render vengeance to mine enemies and will reward them that hate me. You know, there's a lot of people in the world today that hate God. All you got to do is look at our government. I don't know if some of you have seen this week there while they were hashing over things there. But I've seen a, a woman, a black woman, who was saying that um, men can have babies. I'm thinking to myself, you've got to be kidding me. How stupid can someone be? And I'm thinking about, we have this new 
Supreme Court justice lady who doesn't even know the difference between a man and a woman. Oh my word. That's, that's really hating God right there. Now, if the Lord prepares for judgment, and when he finally does judge, and he puts his hand to that dreadful work of executing that judgment, he says, I will render vengeance to my adversaries and reward them that hate me. Those that God has marked out for destruction because they hate him. They're his enemies. They think about who hates God. Most of the governments in the world today hate God. Most of the, if all the false religions of the world hate God. All the false teachers hate God. All the false prophets, all the false Christs, all those who hate his people. And not only Christians, but his people, Israel. Those mockers and those scoffers. God will avenge the blood of his servants. And Revelation 19.2 declares that. We, we just went through the book of Revelation. There is no escape. You can't be delivered out of his hand. There's no escape from the execution of his power. He makes it very clear on this point. What he says in verse um, 41 here, he says he wets his sword, W-H-E-T. That means he's preparing it. He says if there, there is that stipulation, if he prepares it, if he sharpens it. And by the way, um, it's as if God's taking a sword and, he, and he's putting, um, he's making it so it, it's bright and it's sharp and it's ready to destroy. Um, God's enemies hate him. And um, if that's the way it's going to be, well, then they can expect this. And he, it's like, if I do this, in other words, it's a warning there. He's going to reward these people for their works. So while his, his, his sword is being wetted, now, if you look at today, <coughs> does anybody doubt how close we are to the chapter 6 of the book of Revelation? What do we see going on? Well, in America, they're trying to bring in the central bank digital currency. Does anybody know what that is? Let me make sure. I know some of you do, but for those of you who don't, central bank digital currency is really Revelation chapter 13, where we have the mark of the beast, where if you have, you can't buy or sell till you have that mark. Central bank digital currency is money that is no more in dollar bills or, or in any other shape or form. It's going to be something that you don't even see anymore. And, you know, we have the card now with the chip on it. Eventually that chip will be going into your right hand or your forehead. But you won't be able to spend anything unless the government says it's okay. They'll have complete control of your money. And by the way, this is not something that is way down the road. They've already tried to pass it in America. And in South Dakota recently, if the governor wouldn't saw it, it would have been passed in that state. And it was just that close. But still... They're going to try to get that thing in there. Now, did anybody notice that the 16th largest bank has just failed? That's not like a, a casual thing. So let me first of all say this. I'm not, I'm not an alarmist. I'm just warning you. Um, Till they get to that, I don't know if we're going to be here for that when they swap over to the CBDC, Central Bank Digital Currency. Uh, my warning to you would be, have some cash on hand to back you up if they shut the banks down because they're liable to do that. And then try to bring into this central bank digital currency. What that means is that you won't be able to buy anything unless they allow you to buy it. 
And if you're not following along with what they say to do and, and agree with them that men can have babies and be turned into women and women into men, then you won't be able to buy anything. Now, could that happen before we leave? I, I think it could. He, he, he's not, I'm not our responsibility to leave at any spe- come and get us at any specific time. Uh, now, it's true that we won't have to worry about taking the mark of the beast. That's in the midpoint of the tribulation. So if you think about that, that's three and a half years into the midpoint of the tribulation. If we're already seeing that central bank digital currency being tried to push through, there's still three and a half years before it even comes into effect after the tribulation starts. How close must we be? And I say to myself, boy, we better be living tight with the Lord. And, and that's why I say I, I better preach on the, on the sovereignty of God before I get to the book of Romans, which will actually increase on building this up. But I really think as Christians, we better start getting a serious walk with the Lord. We better bring it in. And if we've been slack like the church of Laodicea, let's start bringing it in individually. And I have no doubt to you guys corporately, but I think individually you have to take a hard look at ourselves. We must judge ourselves first. And that's what the Lord's doing right now. He's judging His church. And are people uh, living for Christ today? And if you think about the Lord, um, He treadeth the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. Um, The execution, when God finally does um, take hold on judgment, it will be extremely violent. It'd be enough blood to run as high as a horse's bridle. And he has sovereignly described the limits of evildoers. It's called the day of the Lord. That's really what this speaks to here. The day of the Lord. And he says here in uh, verse 41, and, reward, I will, and will reward them that hate me. God takes it personal when people hate him. And if we look at the book of Romans chapter 1, they truly hate him there. And I see that in our own nation. It's very important to keep our ear on these things. God will avenge himself and he will avenge his people. And he says in verse 42, I will make mine arrows drunk with blood. And um, he says here, um, and my sword shall devour flesh in that with the blood of the slain and of the captives from the beginning of revenges upon the enemy. Uh, verse 42. So he gives space for repentance. If I, if I wet my glittering sword, in other words, now is the time to repent and make peace with the Lord. That's his warning to the nation of Israel here, but it's the same warning to us. The same warning to Gentiles who have yet to trust in Christ. Now, after all that, and this is, by the way, the last verse in this glorious song, and I'll, I'll leave it to you to read the, the rest of this chapter, or you know, go back and read the beginning of it, right to the end. But really, the main point that I, I'm going to bring you to here is verse 43. Rejoice, all you nations, with his people. For he will avenge the blood of his servants and will render vengeance to his adversaries and will be merciful unto his land and to his people. Every time God you know, pronounces judgment on something, he always leaves us this, this last verse here, and we can thank the Lord for that. Um, when he says rejoice, I mean, there it is right there. And look what he says, O you nations, that's the Gentiles right there, with his people, the Jews. So the nation of Israel, um, when it got to the nation of Israel, we're going to rejoice with his people. 
Gentiles will rejoice because I'm talking, when I say Gentiles, I mean those of us who were Gentiles but now we're in the body of Christ. Because there's a remnant whose end will be peace. God's people will rejoice at last forever. For he will avenge the blood of his servants. Paul quoted this section, by the way, in Romans chapter 15, verse 10, when he says, Rejoice, you Gentiles, with his people. Who, at one time, we were not his people. During this time, the Gentiles were not his people. But now we are his people. And he used us, and some of you might say, well, I don't know if I like that. He used us to make the nation of Israel jealous. And, and they are. They're jealous. And that was what God's purpose was. But yet God still gives mercy to his covenant people, and that is the nation of Israel, his Abrahamic covenant, his Davidic covenant, the land covenant, the temple covenant. He'd always have a, a priest there from the family of David. So what you see here really in the sovereignty of God is the main part that I want to bring you to here. That last line, and will be merciful. I just want to look at that part right there. What mercy, that word for mercy there, is very similar to the word grace. That word for mercy there really means, uh, it actually means atonement. Will be atoning unto his land and to his people. That word for mercy there. So if you think about what grace does, along with mercy and the conversion of souls, it brings them to rejoice with all the people of God together in avenging the blood of God's servants, the Old Testament prophets, the Jewish believers from the Old Testament. Um, you have the New Testament believers. You have those of us who are in Christ. You have the uh, tribulational saints. And then you have the millennial saints. He's going he's gonna to avenge all those servants who, who were killed. And here's where, really where we see the heart of God. And and yet God is sovereign as we've seen in the first few verses. But God here really shows an important part of his sovereignty. That he's merciful. And he'll be merciful unto his land and to his people. That God in his sovereignty is sovereign in his mercy. That's when it kicks in in that mercy. And this is what the Lord wanted to bring to our attention. Because he's saying this as a last point before the, his people go into the promised land. In a sense as we are prepared to go into the promised land at the rapture, um, it should bring us to that attention also. And at the end, of this is a song here. And when he says merciful, it's the Hebrew word kofar, and it means to make an atonement to cleanse and to pardon. To all everywhere. Listen to Hebrews 7.25. Wherefore he is able to save them to the uttermost that come unto God by him, him being Jesus Christ, seeing he, Jesus Christ, ever liveth to make intercession for them. And that's the message, really, in this song of Moses, that even in the Old Testament, in the book of the law, in the divine judgment of the sovereign God, the Holy One of Israel, that in the end of his declaration of coming judgment, that there is hope, and that he is able to say to the animals, those who come to God, by Jesus Christ the Lord. Whatever difficulties arise with the respect to sin and to guilt, that the power and dominion of that sin and guilt has been taken away by the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And for those of you who feel there is no hope, there is one who by virtue 
of his death on the cross and of the victory in his resurrection, of his high office of the high priest. He has an eternal priesthood. He's able to save because even now he ever liveth to make intercession for them who through faith in his blood are justified and saved from the wrath of God, saved from this judgment right here, and we are reconciled to God by the death of Jesus Christ. We're saved by his life because he rose from the dead and defeated death and sin. And that now he's seated at the right hand of the Father as the victor to appear in the presence of God for us, his children. And he's there to advocate for us, to secure more grace and strength for us, to aid in the attacks of our foes. So whatever we see on the horizon, I'm not here to alarm you. I am here to warn you, though. But more importantly, it's on the ground of that great sacrifice on the cross that grace and mercy is obtained according to the riches of his glory, which is inexhaustible in its fullness. Because we serve a sovereign God through Jesus Christ, our Savior. Let's pray. Father, Lord, we thank you for your sovereignty, that you are the sovereign God. Lord, help us to keep into our hearts and minds of your greatness, to put you in the proper place, not only when we come here to worship you, to have you sanctified in both our minds and our hearts, but Lord, wherever we are, and especially this week, as we are your ambassadors, help us to be those type of Christians, Lord, that would honor you with a holy life, and to let people know, as your ambassadors, that Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, and the life. Father, we thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.